This is the ballad of Hollywood Jack and the Rage Cage. And Hollywood Jack hit the big time and went to make movies. From iHeartRadio, the Based on True Events anthology. We chronicle true events in the Hollywood tradition. That is to say, adhering to the facts, as long as the facts don't get in the way of a good story. First up, The Don, the definitive 24-episode podcast series on Hollywood producer Don Simpson. Episode 6, Don Flies Too Close to the Sun. There's a photo that went viral of an old truck driver where the left half of his face is ravaged and wrinkled from years of sun exposure, but the right half is smooth and youthful. There's no subtlety in marking the passage of time of a trucker, and there's no subtlety in Hollywood where time can only be marked by success and failure. Pierce had been in town three days. His investigation into those closest to Don, namely the drug dealers, B actresses, coke-addled producers, and Hollywood madams, had given Pierce, well, pretty much nothing. Pierce didn't exactly help his cause by partying with the people he was supposed to be investigating. Perhaps Pierce believed that cozying up with these characters might somehow bring him closer to learning what happened to Don. But after three days, Pierce found himself worse off than when he had first arrived. Don's drug dealer had stopped paying for Pierce's hotel room and threatened to call his Colombian drug lord associates if Pierce continued asking about his ex-girlfriend. It wasn't the ex-girlfriend that Pierce wanted, but the ex-girlfriend's doctor who was reportedly a regular fixture at Don's parties. If only Pierce could track him down. But at the moment, Pierce was pressed to find a roof over his head and cash to buy a one-way ticket back to England. All this to say that Pierce's time in Hollywood should have been marked as a total failure. So, why was Pierce so upbeat standing outside Don's house at five in the morning? The simple answer is, he had an invitation. In the 10 years that Pierce knew Don, he had never been invited to his house. Don treated him as a buddy, a confidant, a collaborator, but never the relationship that Pierce truly desired, a friend. The sun had yet to rise in Bel Air, but the birds were already in full-blown chatter. Pierce reread the note left for him at his hotel room. He was welcome to move into Don's guest house overlooking the pool. The pool gate was locked. So Pierce approached the front door. The door was open. I stepped into the foyer, and there, standing before me, was Don. Er, rather, a life-size, three-dimensional cutout of Don. On a glass coffee table in his Navy pilot jacket from Top Gun. It was an accurate likeness, but for the fact that the cutout stood six feet tall, and Don was barely 5'8". Don, even in death, was larger than life. Pierce called out hello and announced his presence. No one answered. Why did you pick me? Pierce padded down the hallway to the screening room. The movie playing was American Gigolo. On the screen, Richard Gere is standing in the nude, gazing out the window, his manhood in freeze frame, fully exposed on the large screen. The image is rather unremarkable, but for the fact that no man in the history of studio movies had bared himself fully on the screen. The frame suddenly changes to another gratuitously sexualized image, an exotic dancer splayed out in a chair, her back arched as she's doused with a bucket of water. Flashdance. The frame suddenly changes again 
I ain't gonna quit. All right, then you can forget it. You're out. Don't you do it. Don't you. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. There seemed to be a connection between the images. They were all edited from Don's films. The clips shared the same themes. Sexualized objectification. Desperate outsiders fueled by raw passion who ultimately prevail. Was that how Don saw himself? Pierce had been watching the clips for about 30 seconds before he realized he was not alone. In the light of the movie screen, a young man and woman, white, early 20s, were, to Pierce's horror, having sex right in the same room he was standing in. Not wanting to make his presence known, Pierce padded quietly out of the screening room. Pierce found his way to the pool house. The decor was California beige. The beds, the walls, the carpeting, all shades of beige. There was a juniper bonsai on the bedside table, all perfectly zen for a peaceful night's sleep. And yet, Pierce's mind was roiling. Jet lag, a three-day bender of booze and cocaine, an icky image of pasty white kids having sex. Pierce knew he wouldn't be able to sleep. He searched Don's medicine cabinets and found several bottles of sleeping pills. The name on the pills gave him pause. Dr. Peter Fraser, Don's doctor, who overdosed in the very same pool house. Pierce put down the sleeping pills. He had spent years covering Don's extravagant lifestyle, and now here he was, just one room over from Don's palatial palace. The pool house was connected to the main house by a long, columned passageway. As I walked under the Tuscan archway overlooking the pool, I felt I might have been a supporting player, a conspirator perhaps, in one of Shakespeare's Italian plays, but not for Don's Bowflex and Thighmaster and phalanx of fitness machines. I'm reminded of an article Don had asked me to write about. It detailed his boot camp regime he had designed with his Navy SEAL trainer. Of note was a massage bench attached to a medieval-looking machine looped with giant rubber bands. I profiled how the Navy SEAL would massage the bands along Don's stomach, the vibration peeling away Don's tummy flap to his hard-earned, rock-hard eight-pack. Perhaps it was Pierce's coverage of Don's abs that spurred interest from Playgirl. After vibration treatment, Don would subject himself to hours inside a custom-filled sauna suit that would mimic the effects of sitting hours inside a sweat lodge. According to Pierce, Don would wear the sauna suit all day while rolling calls. The suit had the effect of a dehydrator sucking moisture out of a piece of fruit. Don would often have to drop a call when he became faint or lightheaded. He compared it to cutting weight for wrestling. Don wrestled competitively at the University of Oregon. For Don, grappling, dominating, and ultimately submitting another man was the ultimate victory. Don touted himself a gladiator in an industry where the top execs were Ivy Leaguers whose idea of competition was five hours on the golf course. Don would never fail to bring up that 14 of the first 40 presidents had been wrestlers and that Abraham Lincoln wrestled 300 matches, losing just once. Don would mimic the chokeslam said to be invented by Lincoln, where he would lift his opponent by the neck and slam him to the ground. Don took the sauna suit to the extreme in the weeks leading up to his 25th high school reunion. 
It was 1986, and Don had just been anointed the king of Hollywood after the blockbuster success of Top Gun. Most titans of industry would simply enter their high school reunion through the front door. But not Don. As Pierce recalled in an earlier tape... I'm travelling with Don in a Bell 206 Long Ranger. It's a spacious chopper that seats seven. In this case, four. Myself, Don and two penthouse centerfolds. We're flying over Don's hometown of Anchorage, Alaska. Our landing spot? The South Anchorage High School football field. To crystallize the visual, we've got Don in one of his Armani suits, his haircut circa Miami Vice. He's been on a crash diet. He looks like Mel Gibson on Hunger Strike. He's extremely irritable. He hasn't eaten solids in two weeks. He pays little attention to the centerfolds, Let's call them Tanya and Tawny. Don had attached a subwoofer to his boombox. The effect was to blast music out of the chopper like in the scene from Apocalypse Now. Like in the movie, he hopes his old classmates will file out once they hear the music. And that's just what happened. A Don Simpson movie shoots Migs out of the sky. A Don Simpson movie smashes stock cars at 200 miles per hour. A Don Simpson movie crosses shark-infested waters to Alcatraz, yet none of his movie exploits compared to this staged arrival for his 25th high school reunion. For the past 10 years, Don had lived every day of his life as if it were a movie. This is the day Don would finally star in one of them. The football field was bathed in a sort of diffused golden light from a Tony Scott movie. It all played out perfectly, a Don Simpson production just as Don had choreographed it. If only Don could live in that movie moment forever. Don waits a beat before sliding open the helicopter door. Don's girlfriends disembark, their hair blowing in the helicopter winds. Don waits another beat. He knows the most important shot in any movie is the shot where the star is first introduced to the audience. And my God, that's what he was. A movie star. Don's hair was crisp like a meringue. He had applied enough hairspray to combat the wind from the chopper's blades. What was going through his mind upon seeing his classmates for the first time in 25 years? Pierce would recall Don doing a sort of mental headcount, tallying the number of classmates. It was self-evident that Don made more in taxes than all of his class of 62 classmates' income combined. The helicopter rental and the price of the escorts alone was a bigger expense than the reunion party. Don had told Pierce he planned to stay for a few hours. He'd tell stories about his movies, how Kilmer and Cruz didn't want to do the scene where they say they'll be each other's wingman. You can be my wingman anytime. Bullshit. You can be mine. And how the scene wasn't going to be shot until Don stepped in and told them the scene was going to be the most memorable scene in the whole movie. But Don didn't tell any stories that day. Instead of hugs, he stiffly offered handshakes. He worked the room as if it were any other Hollywood industry event. But behind the formality was a bottled up anger. An anger that Don had been carrying for 25 years. As Pierce described it, Don could hear the buzzing through the crowd like distressed bees searching for honeycomb. Who is that? 
Is that Don Simpson? Don had recognized one of the high school jocks, Brad Daly. Brad was the sort of guy that Don hated, the kind of guy that flunked algebra twice but still got all the girls. Brad starts to snicker as Don approaches. He asks, in a voice loud enough for Don to hear, Who's the guy in the sunglasses? It's the question Don has been waiting to be asked since his graduation. It was the question he had hoped he would be asked by Brad Daly and the jocks that bullied him, by the teachers who told him he would amount to nothing. It was a question that Don had been waiting to answer for a very long time. It was an answer that I'd always thought would make a great title to his biography. I'm Don Simpson, and you're not. And with that, Don turns and leaves the gym with Tawny and Tina on each arm. Don left his high school reunion without speaking to a single person. No memories shared, no laughs, no hugs, no human connection. And yet, for Don... It was a beautiful moment. It was the most beautiful moment. I've had a lot of good times, Pierce. But this, Don grows emotional, was the best fucking day of my life. I looked out the window as Don's classmates gathered to watch outside as we faded off into the sunset. What was going through Don's mind as he looked out the window? Did he have a sort of it's-a-wonderful-life flashback flying over his childhood home? Perhaps he was telling Pierce, that's where my parents would lock me up in a dark closet, my penance for having impure thoughts. Alaska was a scary place for a little kid. There were more guns than people. And the colder it got, the more often my parents dragged me to church listening to preachers tell us that we would go to hell if we didn't take the Lord as our Savior. They knew damn well my only Savior was the movies. You see that Art Deco building over there? That's the Denali Movie Theater, where I saw my first movie, The Greatest Show on Earth. That was my rosebud moment. I was seven. I memorized the trailer. I wouldn't stop reciting it until my mom agreed to take me. We bring you the circus, the Pied Piper whose magic tunes lead children of all ages from six to sixty into a tinsel and spun candy world. We bring you the circus Pied Piper whose magic tunes greet children of all ages from six to sixty into a tinsel and spun candy world of reckless beauty and mounting laughter and whirling thrills. As little Don sits in the front row, stuffing his face with popcorn and rock candy, his eyes growing bigger and bigger with each circus act, more spectacular than the next, his mood suddenly darkens. As Pierce would later tell it, Jimmy Stewart is out of his clown costume, but still wearing his clown face. He nods down to Charlton Heston, whose life he has just saved, and moves to join the arriving crowd but is stopped by Henry Wilcoxon. He arrests the clown, which sends young Don into a fit. You can't arrest the clown! You can't arrest the clown! His mother pulls him by the hair out of the theater, little Don on the street corner, crying his eyes out. His mother pulls the car up, but Don doesn't get into the car. He charges back into the theater, past the ticket usher, up the stairs, to the projectionist booth, bursting open the door and demands... Change the ending! But little Don couldn't change the ending of the movie. But he could one day change the ending of his own movies. 
The way Pierce recounts it, it was at that moment that Don knew he would go into the movie business. Pierce's recollection of Don's trip ends here. We're not sure if he had ended up in the main house that night, or if he had slept in the pool house, or maybe he passed out on the vibrating rubber band bench. His next tape recounts his waking up and entering the kitchen of the main house. He's greeted by a peach fuzz college-age kid reading the Hollywood trade Variety. He looked familiar, medium build with floppy hair. He introduced himself, Howie, the assistant. He offered bagels, Nate Nows. Mia would be coming shortly, traffic. This was the cadence of young Hollywood assistants, one long sentence followed by a non-sentence. Howie made small talk about film school, UCLA, and how he wanted to be a filmmaker, director. Pierce felt a wave of jealousy. I couldn't help but associate 22-year-old Howie with 22-year-old me. 22-year-old me had none of 22-year-old Howie's confidence or swagger. All the sort of arrogance that comes from privilege and a little life experience. Unlike myself at 22, Howie had all the promise and potential to be whoever Howie thought he should be, as long as Howie played the game. Howie appeared to be a simple young man. His odds were quite good. Howie then took a call from his boss, Mia. She wouldn't be coming in. Don was upset about the review of her new movie. Don in this case being Don Steele, the producer and former studio head Don Steele. Don Simpson had mentored Don Steele at Paramount. Don, the tough-minded executive, and Don, the high-octane producer, would team up for all of Don Simpson's hit movies. Don Steele would break the glass ceiling to become the first female studio head. But no male studio head was subject to nicknames like the Queen of Mean or Balls of Steel. Men like Don Simpson were labeled tough, whereas Don was called bitchy. Where Don Simpson was competitive, Don Steele was hyper-aggressive. Where Don Simpson was tenacious, Don Steele was abrasive. Paramount would eventually fire their first female studio head while she was in labor, giving birth to her first child. One could imagine Paramount's Ned Tainan asking to be patched into Don Steele's maternity suite and the nurse putting the phone up to Don's ear during contractions. We at Paramount are so grateful for your service. Unfortunately, we will have to let you go. Please don't speak to the press until we have issued our statement and give that baby a big kiss from her Uncle Ned. This might have been the first and only time that Don Steele was left speechless. And now, the first woman ever to run a studio who was behind such hits as Flashdance and Footloose and Fatal Attraction and The Accused had been demoted to making a feature film called Angus, starring James Vanderbeek and George C. Scott about a fat kid who turns the tables on the school bully. We're going to turn you from a large, pathetic virgin into a large, pathetic virgin with a new look. Mia apologized to Pierce and hoped they might see one another later in the day. It was here that Pierce noticed a name scrawled out in a notebook on the counter. The name was memorable for one reason. It was, in Pierce's estimation, the longest name he had ever seen. By his count, over 30 letters long. That was the name of the chief medical examiner and coroner of Los Angeles County. Pierce knew the name, having tried several times to reach the coroner's office when he first arrived to town. Lakshman An Sathiag Ishwan was the coroner in the O.J. Simpson case. 
he would perform Michael Jackson's autopsy and testify in the Phil Spector trial. Later, under much scrutiny, he would change the actress Natalie Wood's cause of death from accidental drowning to drowning and other undetermined factors. What business might Mia have had with the coroner? Mia gives Howie a few final directives, dry cleaning to pick up, afternoon meetings to cancel, etc. She signs off, teasing Howie on his hot date from last night. Howie sheepishly replies, it went well. A sudden flash overcomes Pierce. He knows where I had seen Howie. I suddenly recalled the image of a flabby, pasty-faced Howie panting over the poor, wretched girl on the receiving end. Howie gives me a knowing wink, as if to say, I know that you know where you've seen me. It was a look that said, don't you envy my life? Having sex in my boss's screening room and getting paid to fetch pastries. Howie kicked up his feet and grabbed himself a Danish. He knew this gig would get him a development job in a couple of years. In five years, he'd be a fully-fledged producer. Life was looking pretty sweet for Howie. I declined his offer for a pastry and asked that Howie might open the driveway gate so I might have a stroll and some fresh air. I hadn't walked more than a block down Stone Canyon Road when I saw two moustache cops parked outside Madame Cora's. Then came a parade of more police cars. I noticed Cora's handyman fleeing over the side yard. He disappeared over a neighbor's stone wall. It was a bust, plain and simple. A few minutes later, they took Madame Cora away in handcuffs. As it turned out, the young woman who had refused to take her top off in front of Cora was a cop, and she had been wearing a wire. But that was just the tip of the iceberg. The LAPD was looking for a bigger takedown. What went down over the past several months was an elaborate Keystone Cops sting operation involving seven call girls, half a dozen undercover cops, and a confidential informant named Philip Ramsey. Philip was a sex addict and a john who had been busted several times at brothels around town. In order to avoid prosecution, he agreed to play the part that he perfected, to be the john to Cora's girls. According to Pierce, Detective Bramble would call Cora pretending to be Philip Ramsey. Cora would send over the girls. Ramsey would fulfill his assignment and pay for their services. Why Detective Bramble would continue to lay out a dragnet dependent on a sex-addicted John to gather further evidence on Cora, who was so obviously a madam, was a real head-scratcher. Bramble went even further in assigning six officers to go undercover. The officers rented a house in Malibu overlooking the ocean. They stocked the bar with booze. He instructed the officers to in no way touch or coerce the girls into sex. This was made all the more difficult as the call girls got more and more drunk and started trying to kiss and grope the officers. When the officers resisted, the girls started kissing each other in what was turning into a wild sex party. One of the detectives slipped away to phone Detective Bramble for help. Bramble told them literally and figuratively to man up, instructing each officer to pair off with a girl. The officers dispersed with their chosen girls. One by one, the girls offered up sex and a fee for their services. The officers would then whip out their badges and make the arrest. Meanwhile, across town, Phil Ramsey was having a blast, continuing to solicit sex. More arrests were made. 
After a dozen arrests, I guess the LAPD had enough to arrest the infamous Madame Cora, who they already knew was a Madame due to the hundreds of pages they had collected in her file. Now, the head-scratcher of it all was that the files painted Cora in a very favorable light. The LAPD vice squad had a stable of 200 informants. Cora was ranked number one. Over the years, her information had brought down drug cartels, gang activity, and even a terrorist plot. She was a one-woman crime stopper. And yet, her bail was set for a whopping $1 million. She would have had to put her house up as collateral. Cora was livid when she came home from the police station. She screamed at the reporters camped outside her house. She had a client list that would destroy lives. Not just actors and rock stars, but senators and heads of state. She would tell all if her case went to trial. Pierce wished he had taken Cora up on her offer to write her book. Madame Cora was front page news. Pierce hoped to get inside to talk to Cora, but a news crew had blocked the entrance. Her story would air that night on the local Fox station. This woman may have masterminded a global call girl ring. She told me that the people I'd be working with, uh, they were very high up. Jim Paymar probes the world of high-class prostitution and its connections with international intelligence agencies. Pierce wondered how the news crew had been tipped off so quickly. This was pre-internet, before social media could spread the news in a millisecond. Who informed the press of Cora's arrest? And why? Pierce took his time walking back to Don's estate. A theory began to form in his mind. What if the LAPD arrested Cora to cause a distraction? The media would descend on one Hollywood scandal, the arrest of a high-priced madam, and ignore another Hollywood scandal, the death of a Hollywood producer. It was something of a wag-the-dog conspiracy theory, but a theory that Pierce couldn't let go of. As he stood in front of Don's gated driveway debating his next move, a black Ferrari screeched to a halt, inches from launching Pierce onto the roof like a scene out of one of Don's action films. Pierce recognized the license plate, the Don. Who was driving Don's Ferrari? The driver rolled down her window with an apologetic wave. It was the woman from Morton's, Mia. What's with all the press around Cora's house? She asked. Listen to The Dawn on the iHeartRadio Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Episode 6 Disclaimers. The description of the exercise equipment in Don's house is speculative. We do know that Don went to extremes to lose weight. He was most likely on an extreme diet in anticipation of his 25th high school reunion. Don's helicopter arrival at his reunion was an inspiration for the scene in Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion with Lisa Kudrow and Mia Sorvino, where the wealthy playboy, played by Alan Cumming, arrives at their high school reunion in a helicopter. All the alumni come out to see the spectacle, only to see him leave abruptly just as Don had done. Disclaimer 2. Don's Childhood in Alaska. According to Don in the James Toback documentary The Big Bang, Don grew up in an abusive, fundamentalist Christian home. However, there are other accounts that Don had a perfectly normal middle-class childhood. As far as Don's rosebud moment in seeing the film The Greatest Show on Earth, 
That's a story Don told quite often. Interestingly, The Greatest Show on Earth is also the first film experience of Steven Spielberg, who also credits the film as being a major inspiration. We wonder if Don might have created the myth to put him in esteemed company with Spielberg. Disclaimer 3. Pierce's encounter with fictitious assistant Howie is, of course, a fabrication. Howie did not have sex in Don's screening room, although we did talk to one of Don's assistants who told us that he, in fact, did lose his virginity in Don's screening room. Howie's boss, Mia, as we mentioned earlier, is also a fabrication, as is her relationship with the real-life producer Don Steele. Don Steele was known inside the business as the Queen of Mean. She was, in fact, fired from Paramount shortly after giving birth. Thereafter, Don struggled to make films. She would die of brain cancer two years later. Disclaimer 4. The L.A. coroner with 31 letters in his name was, in fact, the coroner who presided over Don's autopsy. Disclaimer 5. The sting operation of Madame Cora is mostly a dramatization. By all accounts, in reality, it was something of a Keystone Cops affair. Why the LAPD went to such elaborate lengths to solicit sex from prostitutes when it was so obvious that Madame Alex was a madam seems rather absurd, not to mention a blatant waste of taxpayer money. However, Don, to our knowledge, was not used as a source in the district attorney's case, nor did he ever publicly issue comments about his old friend's demise. <laughs> 